Our scripture lesson is taken again from the book of Judges, Judges chapter 4, beginning at verse 1 and reading the entire chapter. When Ehud was dead, Israel, the, the children of Israel, again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt at Harosheth, Hagoim. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, for Jabin had 900 chariots of iron, and for 20 years he had harshly oppressed the children of Israel. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. And she would sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the mountains of Ephraim. And the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. Then she sent and called for Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kedesh in Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, Go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor, Take with you 10,000 men of the sons of Naphtali and of the sons of Zebulun, and against you I will deploy Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude at the river Kishon, and I will deliver him into your hand. And Barak said to her, If you will go with me, then I will go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. So she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, there will be you in the journey you are taking, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And Deborah rose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, and he went up with 10,000 men under his command. And Deborah went with him. Now Heber, the Kenite, of the children of Hobad, the father-in-law of Moses, had separated himself from the Kenites and pitched his tent near the terebinth tree at Zeanim, which is beside Kadesh. And they reported to Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinoham, had gone up to Mount Tabor. So Sisera gathered together all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the people who were with him from Harosheth, Hagoim, to the river Kishon. Then up, for this is the day in which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand, has not for you. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him, his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak and Sisera alighted and fled away on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Harry of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. However, Sisera had fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the house of Heber. The... And Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not fear. And when he had turned aside with her into the tent, she covered him with a blanket. 
Then he said to her, please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a jug of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, stand at the door of the tent, and if any man comes and inquires of you and says, is there any man here, you shall say no. Then Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand and went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple, and it went down into the ground, for he was fast asleep and weary, so he died. And then as Barak pursued Sisera, Jael came out to meet him and said to him, come, I will show you the man whom you seek. And when he went into her tent, there lay Sisera dead with the peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, in the presence of the children of Israel. And the hand of the children of Israel grew stronger and stronger against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they had destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he add his blessing to it. Beloved of the Lord, this uh, is a fascinating passage full of rich imagery and uh, intriguing characters, unexpected uh, twists, and uh, capped by the story first in prose. And then if I were to read further, chapter 5, we'd read the same story celebrated in uh, poetry and in song. This is about uh, God's lightning bolts overcoming the accursed oppressor. We want to consider, as we uh, did this morning, the, the identity and the meaning of the oppressor, and uh, then also uh, these two uh, godly women who are used of God to accomplish great things, and finally, uh, Barak, the somewhat reluctant uh, Savior, who is uh, indeed God's uh, lightning bolt, for his name, Barak, means uh, lightning. First of all, the accursed oppressor. They are sold into the hand of the Canaanites. Uh, as I mentioned uh, this morning, each oppressor has some spiritual significance. The first uh, came from the place of Abraham's origin, Mesopotamia, which uh, contains uh, Babylon. And uh, the message there was uh, threatening to undo the covenant, and it foreshadowed the fact that one day, indeed, God would finally take away Israel's sovereignty and bring them back uh, into Mesopotamia when he brought them to uh, Babylon. Moab and Ammon and the Amalekites robbed uh, Israel of the pride of their first victories and shamed them into seeing that they had become like Sodom and Gomorrah and their uh, immoral ilk. Uh, to be oppressed by Jabin of Hazor, a Canaanite king, also has significance. Uh, this Jabin is not the first Jabin. In fact, many scholars believe that the word Jabin is not a personal name, but a title like the word Pharaoh. And uh, this is a Jabin, another Jabin of Hazor. The first Jabin of Hazor that we read about was one in Joshua chapter 11, and, uh, it, which describes Joshua's last a great victory in conquering the land of Canaan. Uh, he fought against the northern tribes who all came together under the leadership of the Jabin of Hazor. Uh, the, uh, that Jabin ruled the, uh, is called, uh, or Hazor is called the chief city of the Canaanites, and uh, that Jabin ruled the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Jebusites, all the northern, or northern, northern regions. And in uh, Joshua 11.10, uh, Hazor is called the head 
of Canaan, the whole land of Canaan, because uh, uh, Joshua took out the, so to speak, the weaker kings in the south and then went and took out the stronger kings who are led by Jabin of Hazor. And uh, in, so, in a sense, uh, Jabin of Hazor was, was the strongest power in the whole land of Canaan as, and, in a sense, represents all of Canaan. Uh, uh, this is confirmed by the fact that uh, Joshua treats the town of Hazor the same way he treated Jericho. Jericho was the first city that he conquered. Hazor was the last city that he conquered. And both cities were devoted to destruction. They were devoted to the Lord and offered up completely as a, a sacrifice to God. No plunder was taken from Jericho. No plunder was taken from Hazor. All the other cities and towns and villages in between that had been conquered, the Israelites were allowed to take plunder. But the first great victory and the last great victory, uh, no. And so uh, conquering Jabin of Hazor was the capstone of Joshua's career. And it was after that that God came to him and said, uh, Joshua, you're old which was God's way of saying, you're done fighting. Although God gave him one more task to do, not to fight, but to apportion the land to the various tribes. Canaan, of course, uh, was for Israel the promised land, uh, the promised inheritance from God. And uh, the land of Canaan both looked back to the Garden of Eden, uh, a place where God would come and dwell in the midst of his people, Canaan was like that for the Israelites, but Canaan also looks forward to uh, the day when the kingdom of God will fill the whole earth, uh, and it will be greater. The, the kingdom will be greater than the Garden of Eden, but again, God will come down and make his home among us. Uh, but now, Israel in the promised land is ruled no longer by uh, uh, God, they're no longer independent, but now they're under this uh, cruel Canaanite king, Jabin of Canaan. And that word Canaan is uh, emphasized in this chapter because we're supposed to think about where we heard about Canaan before, particularly uh, Noah's grandson. Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will he be among his brothers, Genesis 9, 25. Uh, so now the the, the descendant and the ruler of Canaan, the descendant of Canaan and the ruler of the land of Canaan that bears the name of the cursed one, this accursed one is ruling over Israel in the promised land, in that land that represents both Eden and represents the future uh, glory of uh, the new heavens and the new earth. The cursed one is in charge. The cursed one is making life miserable for his people. And uh, God's message to Israel uh, in this is clear. Uh, he who was cursed and put under you is now over you because of your sin. I've allowed him to humble you because of your unfaithfulness. Jabin in Canaan is like the serpent in the garden. There also God said, cursed are you above all animals. Satan is the cursed one, but the cursed one was in the garden deceiving Eve and enslaving Adam and Eve and ruling over them 
by uh, enticing them into sin. Of course, the message to us is that if you or I turn away from God, he will let the cursed Satan enslave us. If you choose other gods, God will enslave you to them and cause you to reap much misery. The false gods of money and sex and power will never give you joy or true peace. They will do just the opposite. They will make you miserable and fill you with pain and if, uh, ult- will ultimately lead to your death. Only God can truly satisfy. The idols that uh, we look to to supply what only God can give will never satisfy us. You will never find happiness or fulfilling, fulfillment by turning to uh, alcohol or illicit drugs or lust or pornography or the love of money or gambling or seeking fame and glory or idolizing sports. Satan uses these false gods to draw you in and then to ensnare you and trap you and then to destroy you. But if you find yourself under Satan's ensnaring power and uh, you realize that he has made you miserable and you cry out for deliverance to save, then he will indeed send a savior. He will send a deliverer. If you cry to God for deliverance, he will set you free from the power of sin. And Paul in Romans 6 says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make it obey its passions. If the Spirit of Christ lives in you, and he does live in every believer, then you have power to break free from the cursed, uh, the accursed one and his enslaving power. Well, this is the oppressor, the cursed one, who uh, enslaves the people and makes their lives miserable. But God used two women to help uh, bring them out from this slavery, heroines of the faith, Now, regarding the first, Deborah, there are some things that need to be said, and uh, uh, this is sort of an aside to the main point of the text, but nevertheless, it's an important point, because the first 17 years of my ministry, which were in the Christian Reformed Church, were dominated by, uh, in part, by the theme of women in office, and Deborah was often referred to with the idea that if Deborah could legitimately be a prophetess in Israel, then there's no reason why women cannot be uh, leaders in Christ's church today and hold the office of minister, elder, and uh, deacon, and so forth. Well, um, that uh, dominated, as I said, the first 17 years of my ministry, and even though uh, it no longer does, a new generation has come along, and new generations ask the same questions. If Deborah could be a prophetess, why can't women be ministers? And uh, to that, there is a good answer, and I want to share that answer with you. The first part of the answer is to say that we must always be clear about, clear about implications and explicit statements. Every Every teaching of Scripture is set forth positively, and when it is set forth positively, it has possible implications 
some of which may be true and some of which may not be true. And the only way you can know is to look at other explicit teachings of Scripture to see if one teaching, if the implication of one teaching is contradicted by the explicit teaching of another passage. Let me give you an example. The Bible teaches that God is sovereign. God is in absolute control. God knows the beginning from the end. He plans everything. He works all things according to his counsel of his plans. Well, one possible implication, one possible implication according to the laws of logic, not necessarily according to scriptural teaching, but one possible implication is that if God is sovereign, you and I cannot be held responsible for what we do. If God has already planned it, why blame me when I do something? God's the one who made it happen. I'm just a puppet on a string. Now, there are some logicians who say that that is a possible implication. But the explicit teaching of Scripture contradicts that implication. Nowhere does the Bible explicitly say you are not responsible for your actions. In fact, the Bible explicitly says the other, that you are held accountable and that the wages of sin is death. Well, with regard to Deborah, uh, a possible implication according to the laws of logic is that if uh, Israel could have women leaders, then the New Testament church can have women leaders. But is that a legitimate implication based on the teaching of Scripture? No. The explicit teaching of the Scripture is, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Yes, there were women prophetesses, and there were women judges, and there were women queens, but there were no women priests in Israel, and the priests are the ones who are in charge of the worship of God. They are the ones who, in worship, represent God to the people, and in worship, represent the people before God, and there is no record of any a woman serving in that religious capacity in Old Testament Israel, and that's consistent with the apostle who says, in the church, I don't let women have authority over men. It's also good to note that Deborah recognizes a limitation to her office and turns to Barak, who is a priest and is a Levite, uh, to lead God's people in holy war. Now, the text does not say explicitly that Barak is a Levite, but he comes from Kadesh in Naphtali, uh, Naphtali, which was a city assigned to the priests. So that was a priestly city, a Levitical city. He's from that city. It is logical to assume that he is a Levite, and uh, he as a Levite is chosen to lead God's people in holy war. Deborah also recognizes God-given gender uh, distinctives when he, she says to Barak that he will be setting obedience in that the honor of destroying the enemy will go to someone else, and not just someone else, but will go to a woman. The shame is not just that another will get the glory, but the shame is especially that it will be given to a woman. Now, Deborah calls herself a mother in Israel, uh, to whom the children of Israel come for judgments. And uh, uh, as a mother in Israel, she uh, gives good judgments and she uh, uh, is uh, against the, the evil one, uh, the cursed one, and 
uh, gives a word from God to Barak to uh, go and fight against this cursed one. We might uh, contrast Deborah with Eve. Uh, Eve, when confronted with the cursed serpent, uh, was deceived, but uh, Deborah, a mother in Israel, was not deceived and uh, became, had a role to play in delivering Israel from the cursed one. Because her role in Israel is that of a mother, she calls one of her spiritual sons who has come of age to take the lead in crushing the enemy. It's not the woman, but it's the seed of the woman who uh, will crush the head of the enemy. Barak is that spiritual son who is called to lead Israel in battle against the accursed oppressor. Though gender may prevent her from doing priestly work and be numbered among the saviors of Israel during the time of Judges, nevertheless, gender does not prevent her from playing an important role, a significant role among God's people as all godly women today also as co-heirs of the grace of life are called to do and many have done. Now there is another woman in this chapter, and that is Jael. Jael is the wife of a Kenite. The Kenites were the family of Moses' father-in-law. And uh, Jael's husband, Hebor, has moved away from his Israelite uh, settlement and pitched his tent toward the Canaanites. And that phrase, pitched his tent, means he's Uh, made an alliance with them, much as Lot uh, pitched his tent toward Sodom and Gomorrah and uh, took a place in the community there and sat among the uh, uh, elders of Sodom and Gomorrah in the city gate and so forth. Uh, So uh, Hebor has uh, uh, distanced himself from Israel and uh, aligned himself with the Canaanites. That has made some people wonder whether uh, Jael was wrong in what she did. Uh, Is she guilty of breaking her husband's treaty? And uh, is she guilty of lying and deception? Is she guilty of violating the rules of hospitality? Is she guilty of murder? Well, if you turn to Judges chapter 5, verses 24 to 27, you'll see that Jael is celebrated as most blessed of women. And that passage celebrates what she has done. She has carried out God's judgment. Her husband had been wrong to enter into a treaty with Israel's enemies. She didn't leave her husband and she didn't publicly denounce him. Thus, Sisera didn't suspect anything when uh, uh, he knocked at her door. Uh, But she gave him his due. She was the instrument of God's judgment against him, like Rahab of Jericho, who went against her own people when she hid the spies on her roof and then helped them to escape out her window. Uh, She acted against her own people, but she did it because she aligned herself with the people of God. And uh, a wife should do that if her husband is unfaithful to God. Jesus uh, warns that he has come to divide families. Matthew 10, do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Too often we see in uh, some churches uh, 
parents uh, who are faithful and seemingly orthodox in their faith, but then a child uh, joins the rainbow coalition and all of a sudden the theology of the parents changes and they align themselves with their child rather than to be faithful to what the scripture teaches. And Jesus warns, you mustn't do that. Your loyalty must be to him and him alone. I think one of the most frightening passages in this regard is uh, Deuteronomy 13 verses uh, six through eight, which uh, talks about husband and wife. If either the husband or the wife worships an idol, then the other partner is to expose that sin uh, so that the idolater can be stoned to death. Uh, even husband and wives should not uh, uh, be silent if uh, the uh, partner is an idolater. Well, these two women are heroines of the faith. They each make a significant contribution in the battle against evil, and even though they are not the Savior, uh, they are uh, celebrated in song and celebrated in Israelite history as uh, great women of faith doing mighty deeds for God. And we can be thankful for them and for their example, and may they inspire young girls and women uh, throughout the ages to also recognize that though there are gender roles and gender distinctions, nevertheless, there is uh, great glory uh, for all God's children when they are faithful to Him. That brings us to consider this uh, Savior, Barak, a type of Savior, a foreshadowing Christ. Uh, he's a uh, reluctant Savior because he sets conditions on his obedience. I will go and do what you tell me God says I should do if you go with me, but I won't go if you don't go with me. Now, Barak's name, as I indicated earlier, means uh, lightning. And that's uh, symbolic, uh, that's uh, significant because lightning is a symbol of God's arrows of judgment. Uh, God comes in the storm and flashes of lightning striking fear in the hearts of his own people and bringing death to his enemies. At Sinai in Exodus chapter 19, on the morning of the third day, there was thunders and lightning and a thick cloud on the mountain and a loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. In 2 Samuel, David celebrates uh, deliverance from God's enemies because God sent out his arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. Uh, arrows and lightning in parallel with one another represent the power by which God uh, dispersed and uh, conquered David's enemies. Uh, in Zechariah 9 verse 14, it says, then the Lord will appear over them, over Israel's enemies, and his arrows will go forth like lightning. The Lord will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwind uh, to overthrow the enemy of Israel. That God comes in the storm like uh, arrows of lightning is played up in the next chapter in the Song of Deborah uh, because the Canaanites believed that their God, Baal, was the God who controlled the storm but God uses the storm and the lightning to destroy the followers of Baal. The name also uh, points to Jesus, uh, first because uh, Jesus uh, appeared as uh, a flash of lightning on the Mount of Transfiguration, but more importantly because uh, for when the Son of Man uh, will come in his glory, he will come like lightning, which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. In Revelation, the throne of God is surrounded by thunder and lightning, and when he comes 
uh, like a storm, his lightning will destroy his enemies. Barak's last name, Ahinoam, uh, also, uh, uh, also is uh, uh, significant in that uh, the first two letters, A-B, are the Hebrew word for father. Uh, the letter I is the uh, personal uh, possessive, my father. And then uh, the rest of the word means delightful. My father is delightful. And that was true of Jesus. That's how he thought he delighted to do his father's will. Uh, the fact that he is a Levite is significant because it is the Levites who are the guardians of uh, Israel to uh, make sure that uh, God's people are kept safe and they are the ones to make holy war against God's enemies. That started at uh, Mount Sinai when Moses came back from the mountain and found them worshiping the golden calf and then he commanded the Levites to make war against his own, their own brethren uh, to destroy those who had worshiped the golden calf. And they are charged to keep the tabernacle and to keep the temple, to keep it safe, to take care of it. By the way, that's the same word that God uses when he instructs Adam to uh, care for the garden. Uh, and uh, it's often translated in Genesis uh, 2.15 as uh, keep or take care of but uh, it's really literally the word guard, guard the garden, uh, make sure no enemy enters the garden. Adam failed to do that, and that's one of the themes of the judges also, is that the Levites, like Adam, failed to guard Israel against apostasy. Uh, a priest's call to uh, lead means this is holy war. The enemy, especially cursed of God, has no right to live in the land of promise. He must be driven out and destroyed. This two points to Jesus, our great high priest, who first cast Satan out of heaven and then cast him out of people and then finally cast him into the lake of fire so that he has no place in the new heavens and the new earth and can hurt us no more. Now, Barak, Barak's response is a bit troubling. His motive in putting conditions on his obedience is seemingly a good motive in that he wants Deborah with him. He recognizes that the Spirit of God is with Deborah, and uh, he wants the Spirit of God to be with him, so he wants Deborah to with, be with him, much as uh, later Israelites would want to take the, the Ark of the Covenant with them into battle uh, to uh, ensure God's presence among them. But uh, putting conditions on a command from God is, is not good. Uh, although, God does not treat him all that badly because of this. You know, this was a bad thing to do, but all, all God does is say, uh, I'm going to give the glory of the victory to somebody else. Uh, it reminds me of uh, the sermon that we heard, uh, the excellent sermon that we heard from uh, Dan Hofflin when uh, Moses was more angry than God was. Uh, the people were grumbling about water a second time. The first time Moses had struck the rock to indicate God's anger. This time, God simply says, speak to the rock. Uh, God is being kind to them and patient with them and wants that to be ind uh, indicated by Moses simply speaking to the rock. But Moses uh, gets carried away and strikes the rock and uh, shows himself angrier than, than God was. And here, I'm sure God is displeased, but he's very gentle with Barak and doesn't uh, 
rebuke him harshly, but only mildly. And one of the reasons is that he had faith. And even though it's weak faith, weak faith is sufficient to save us because it's not the strength of our faith that saves us. It's the strength of the object of our faith that saves us. It's the strength of uh, Christ who saves us. Even weak faith is enough to make this man a hero of faith. He is celebrated in Hebrews 11, chapter 32. He's mentioned among the heroes of faith in uh, that uh, hall, of, hall of Fame of Faith, Hebrews 11. He's also mentioned in 1 Samuel 12 as among the great deliverers and heroes of the faith. He went bravely into battle. He pursued the enemy until the enemy is conquered and his victory is celebrated in chapter 5. And uh, chapter 5, which I'm not going to uh, preach on, I have no intention, uh, no plan to do that, but uh, if the Lord allows, uh, the next time I preach from Judges, I'll go on to uh, chapter 6. But it's good to note that chapter 5 is a song, and uh, that song is sung by the travelers of Israel. Uh, verse 10 and 11 talks about, speak you who ride on white donkeys and who sit in judges' attire and who walk along the road far from the noise of archers among the watering places. There they shall recount the righteous acts of the Lord. Uh, travelers through Israel would gather together at night at watering places and then they would sing songs and Chapter 5 of the book of Judges would be one of the songs that they would sing. Uh, they would sing of the righteous deeds of God, His mighty acts. Uh, they would celebrate in song uh, the, uh, the wonderful deeds of God when they would gather together at the watering places. Well, you and I are travelers. You and I are pilgrims. This world is not our home. We're, we're on pilgrimage to the heavenly Jerusalem that will come down out of heaven and fill the earth. And we gather at watering places, places where the water of life is uh, uh, delivered to you uh, twice each Lord's Day. This is a watering place on the journey of life where we come to be fed and nourished uh, with uh, water that wells up in us unto eternal life. And we also gather to sing the songs of Zion, to sing those songs which we will then take with us as we continue on our journey and sing them to ourselves perhaps during the week to remember the righteous deeds of God. Uh, songs become a, a living memorial sung again and again. And we do that same thing. We worship just as they worshiped. On the Sabbath day of rest, we gather uh, in the place of refreshment and we sing the songs of Zion to celebrate our God and the greater Barak, the greater lightning bolt who has uh, conquered the accursed uh, uh, Satan who uh, seeks to ensnare us. Uh, Jesus, God's lightning bolt, has broken his power and you now, by the Spirit of Christ living in you, are set free from the cursed one's power and can live more and more to the praise of his glory. May God give us such faith and give us many delightful times in the watering holes of Egypt, or the watering holes of uh, the church uh, uh, singing the songs of Zion. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for Barak, and uh, even though his faith was weak, Nevertheless, you honored him and used him, and uh, he points us to the greater lightning bolt, uh, Jesus Christ, 
who has come and conquered uh, the accursed Satan who seeks to enslave us. We pray, Father, that in Christ we may uh, be encouraged to throw off the slavery to sin and uh, put on the new man and uh, live evermore to your praise. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.